You guys, welcome. Why don't you all grab a seat, and we will get started. In fact, if you guys have Bibles, why don't you open up your Bibles to the book of uh, 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians, grab a Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians. If you don't know where that's at, um, don't ever hesitate. Look at the table of contents. It's totally fine. Uh, if you need Bibles, raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, go ahead and keep it. That's our, that's our gift to you guys. We want you to all have a Bible. Um, hey, I just want to say thanks for uh, being here today to join us. It's an opportunity for us to come together to worship. Um, again, it's kind of worth stating, but you know, as a community, like our aim, why do we meet? It's always a good question to kind of ask ourselves. Um, why do we meet on Sunday? Why do we do what we do? Why do we do like practice of hospitality, like all of you introverts are asking that, do we have to do this? Um, why do we have practice of generosity? Why are these practices and habits and routines and whatnot, things that we do? Um, at the end of the day, it's because we want to be shaped to become like Jesus, and it's about exercising muscles, um, spiritual muscles, to become like the one whom we love. Um, we gather on a Sunday morning because it's the day in which we celebrate Jesus rising up from the dead. It's the day in which uh, death was conquered by Jesus's uh, victorious rising again. Um, we gather as a community because it reminds us we're part of a community. We're part of a family. Uh, we give because we recognize God is a generous giver. And if we don't put into our lives these practices or rhythms, we just don't do them. We simply don't do them. And then as a result, we become the default that we're oftentimes wired towards or the opposite, which means we become stingy. We become, uh, uh, self-focused, we become people that only do what we want to do when we want to do it. In other words, we end up becoming people that look nothing like God. And uh, that's our aim here today, is, is about formation. It's about the presence of God, taking time to pause, to stop, to reflect upon the fact that God is here, he loves us, we're invited to worship, to love, to honor him. Uh, it's also about formation, meaning we want to be formed and reshaped from the ways in which we have consistently been living to become new people, and then ultimately about mission. So at some point, this whole morning event thing that we call a church will stop, it will be over, but that doesn't mean that the church is over. It means that uh, the church now begins. We begin to step into the world and be the people that Jesus has called us to be. So this is just an event where we get to come together and be reminded of the people who we are and the God that loves us. So there you go. There's my nice little, like, like here's the E on the I chart. Like, take a look at that. So anyways, uh, I want to pray real quick right now. Then we're going to jump in. We're going to get to work looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we've been in a series for the past three weeks. Now we are kind of making our way through this entire book. We have an incredible team of teachers and people that will be uh, communicating this uh, message to you guys over the duration of the next year, year plus, as we go through this book. But let me pray, then we will begin to take a look at the work. Uh, the subject matter this morning. So, Jesus, thank you so much for your great love. We devote our hearts, our minds, our thoughts to you, and we ask you, God, that you would shape us to become people that are like you. God, we recognize that uh, there's parts in areas of our lives that need reshaping, radical reshaping, reorienting, and God, we also recognize in a lot of ways, to some large degree, we're powerless against that tide that oftentimes seems to be rising inside of us, and that's why we need you, that's why we turn to you, that's why we invite you, Jesus, to do what only you can do, so we give our hearts over to you in this moment, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. 
So I want to start with a question, and then we will begin to take a look at the passage. So we're going to be looking at around verse 10 to around verse 17 today. I'll read it in just a second here, but I want to start with a question. And the question basically is this. Have you ever wondered why there seems to be so much division within the church? It's a question that kind of gets repackaged or reframed in a lot of different ways. It can also oftentimes go like this as well. Why is there so much hypocrisy? Why are Christians so critical and judgmental and rude? And uh, It takes a lot of varying shapes and forms. And it's a question that I think we have to ask. It's a question that Christians, I think, need to face because to some degree, uh, the fact of the matter is we're not the only people group that can struggle or suffer with this reality. But the point of the matter is, is that if it is there in trace elements in any way, uh, we have to deal with it. You have to look at it and ask, why is it there and how can it be eradicated because ultimately what it does is it tends to detract away from the beauty of Jesus, which is what Christianity is all about. It's about pointing to a God who loves us, who's the beautiful, brilliant mind behind all things, who has given himself to us to remake, reshape us into a different type of people. And that's what the gospel is all about. That God has come into this world and has not just simply abandoned us to our brokenness and our sinful proclivities and our own activities that are destructive. And he's come to do something about that to make us an entirely different people. And the teaching that we're going to be in over the next few, several months uh, is actually from a book called Corinthians. So it's technically not a book. It's more of a letter. Uh, we made this observation a couple weeks ago. It's, it's a letter that is kind of a back-and-forth letter. So the people in this particular city called Corinth are writing letters to Paul. Paul is writing letters to them. Paul was an early church leader who went around planting churches and communicating to those churches and teaching them. Uh, there were occasions where Paul would show up in a particular city. He'd plant a little church, which is nothing more than forming a community of people that was typically a multi-ethnic community of people that were centered around Jesus. And Paul would train them and teach them and talk to them about Jesus. And then Paul would move and go and start something else. And then Paul would keep correspondence with these people by way of letter. And this is what we're reading right now. So we're reading an ancient document that's kind of a one-way sided phone call, which we're trying our best to try to understand what the other side is saying to Paul while we're only hearing one side of the conversation, which is from the Apostle Paul. So one of the things that we observe with regard to the passage that's happening here is Paul is identifying that in this church, he gets word back that there's all these divisions that are happening in the early church. And it's one of those questions that sometimes people say, why can't we be like the early church? Like, what early church? The church that is, you know, that some dude sleeping with his mother-in-law, the early church where they're divided with each other, the early church where people are lying, bringing their gifts, and God's killing them? Like, what part of early church do you want to become like? The fact of the matter is, the early church is just as messed up as we are. Uh, the point, well, our great hope is not necessarily to be like the early church, it's to be like Jesus. That's our hope. And what Paul is doing is he's writing them to some degree a corrective to help them get on track to refocus Jesus in their crosshairs in order to reorient their lives according to the purposes of God that he has revealed through the person of Jesus. So that's the big idea that we're trying to look at and try to understand. So what I want to do right now is I want to read uh, from verse 10 to around verse 17. You can follow along if you'd like. Uh, we have it up on the screen, or hopefully you have your Bibles open up to that as well. I'm going to read it, and then uh, we'll jump right into the passage and begin to make some observations, and we'll wrap it up. Paul writes in verse 10, chapter 1, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you should agree, and that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united in the same mind and of same judgment. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Uh, the word brothers can also be it's a general neutral term that can mean male and female, women, children, uh, brothers and sisters. Verse 12, because I say, what I mean is that each one of you says, I'm a Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. And he asks the question rhetorically, he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Uh, it says, I thank God that I did not, that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, uh, people that were part of that local community. Verse 15, he says, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. He says, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas, but beyond that, I did not know anyone else that I had baptized. Verse 17, he says, but Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So what's happening here? Well, what I want to point out, just specifically two things, um, kind of a two-point message, is Paul is making an appeal, and there's an appeal that Paul is going to be basically uh, trying to approach and look at. Number one, his appeal is for unity, which we just read, and we'll talk about that a little bit, and then he's going to appeal to their maturity, that they would grow in a particular direction. So first of all, I think it's worthy to note that what Paul does not do is he does not show up on the scene and assert or strong-arm his authority. So again, this is really important to note because Paul was an important leader in the early church. Paul had a very high level, high degree of significance um, in some circles. Obviously, we already know this because Paul identifies himself as some people are kind of creating this faction around, well, I'm a Paul. And Paul's like, look, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, just, a, I'm just a human agent. I'm broken. I'm fallible. I'm messed up. I got baggage just like the rest of y'all. But I have a role in the church, so don't, don't make factions around me. It's kind of what Paul would basically say. But his whole big idea is that even though he comes on the scene, and even though he has this degree of authority, he planted this church. Right? So what degree does Paul have in terms of relationship with this community? Well, he planted the church. Uh, he was part of the formation of this community. It's kind of like, if you want to put it in terms of, uh, of economics, he was the CEO of this whole thing, though he would never refer to himself as such. So he has a degree of significance and prominence within this community. But Paul does not assert his authority in a way of saying, guys, everybody do what I'm telling you to do, because that's not how Paul rolls. Paul's humble. But what Paul does instead, he says, I appeal to you, which is another translation could be, I beg you. I'm earnestly asking you guys. Um, this is really important because sometimes spiritual leaders, in fact, some of the worst human beings on the planet can be spiritual leaders that abuse their authority in a way where they strong arm, they manipulate, they guilt people, they shame people into doing things. And the fact of the matter is guilt and shame absolutely straight up works, right? You parents totally know that this is the fact, right? Guilt and shame your kids to brush your teeth, whatever. It works, right? Don't judge me. But it's not reflective of the gospel. It's a distortion of the gospel. And it only works for a short amount of time. Until your kids get to a certain age, you're like, oh my gosh, my mom has guilted and shamed me, and they're in therapy, and you've messed them up, and now they're bitter at you, and they don't want everything to do in your life. But the point of the matter is, is at some point, it has an expiration date. So even though it works, it's not the way it should work. What Paul does not do is guilt and shame them. He appeals to them, and he says, I beg you, I urge you guys and he doesn't just simply beg or urge. He urges them. He goes on to say, in and by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is another important thing to just note. Is Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, like I already referenced, the word that's used there is Adelphoi um, in the Greek, which basically means brethren, brothers and sisters. Paul uses his language. This is really important to know that in the early church, 
to describe and distinguish others that are part of this community as not just other fellow hangout people, like part of the club and part of the crew. You're my brothers and sisters. So I don't know how you think about the person sitting next to you right now. If they are a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, they are your sibling in Christ. Um, This familial language is really important because especially I think even today, we live in a hyper-connected, though incredibly lonely world where I can, you know, in an instant find out what somebody's doing on the other side of the planet. So this sense of hyper-connectivity can oftentimes cause me to think that I'm deeply connected to a host of people, but why is it that I'm more lonely as a human being than ever today? Why are we as a culture, as a society, more lonely than ever today? What we need more than anything is to be awakened and aware of the fact that in spite of how culture has gone or in spite of how connected or hyper-connected we are, we have this deep need for connection. And this is what Paul is basically saying. It's like, brothers and sisters, we're one. We belong to a father, a family. We have a place. We're not orphaned. We're not alone. No matter how lonely you might feel, we are not alone. That's a word for some of you who need to just pause and reflect and live into and think about. No matter how lonely you may feel right now, uh, you have a father, you have a family that you belong to. If you are in Christ, live into that, recognize that. That's what Paul wants his people to whom he's writing to understand. Now, he is going to drop the bomb on several of these people. It's like going to drop a grenade in the midst, and things are going to get explosive in just a moment. But Paul, regardless of how severe he's going to try to pr- not, you know, place upon them an understanding of the need for reform and change, he wants them to understand, look, At the end of the day, nothing will change the fact that we are a family, and we're brothers, we're sisters, we're siblings. And then he's going to go on to say, uh, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word name, or the phrase name of the Lord Jesus Christ, is another way of basically linking our affinity, what we are connected to. In other words, we have an allegiance to the name of Jesus. This is really important. What Paul is going to basically say now is that the way that your life is being lived out is not consistent with the name of Jesus. What I love about this is that Paul is going to make an appeal to them, not based upon what they should be doing or shouldn't be doing or what does the law say or what's you know, the status quo or what's the popular opinion of the day. Paul says, but according to the name of Jesus, you belong to Christ. What does it look like to live in a way that's in alignment with who Jesus is? Uh, let me give you an example. When my kids were young, and they would go out of alignment with, you know, family standards or, you know, one sibling would hit another sibling or steal something from another sibling or talk back to mom or whatever. Now, every once in a while, because, like I said, we had to learn this trick early on that, yes, guilt and shame works, but it doesn't really work very long. So there are times that we had to repent from that and say, this is not good, it's not healthy, it's not good for any relationship. But then what we started doing is attempting as best as we can, or at least on our better days, to make an appeal to them according to the family name. So we would say things like this, hey, you know, sweetie, that's not the way stupars act. Stupars don't whack each other when they don't hit their way. Stupars don't throw tantrums in the center of Target when they don't get their way. It's, just not, what, it's not what we do. We, we treat each other with respect. We talk to each other. So if there's something that you are frustrated with, we, we talk about it. We don't just start you know, yelling at each other. That's not how it works. And that's what Paul's basically doing is that according to the name of Jesus, according to your allegiances in your life, we are going to talk about some things. 
And what Paul is about to remind them is that there's an alignment of their heart with the person of Jesus. And then he says, I want you all to agree. I want you all to agree. So with that being said, uh, we got to talk a little bit about the question of unity. What does it mean to be in agreement or live in unity? First of all, it's helpful, I think, to think about what unity is not. First of all, unity is not uniformity. It doesn't mean that everybody dresses in the same clothing. In fact, if you ever go show up at a place and everybody's dressed in white and everybody's acting the same way or saying the same language and kids are dressed in the exact same you know, jumper outfits and all the women are wearing like denim jumper dresses, you're like, this is a cult because that's exactly what this is. Like, it's a cult. Run run, right? All right, that's a cult. Um, it's not uniformity. That's not what Paul is saying. Unity is not the same as uniformity, nor is it um, in the sense of tolerance. Now, uh, I think there's important to identify that there is a modern uh, perception of tolerance, and there is a maybe a more of a historic or an ancient version of tolerance. What I mean by this is that the more modern version of tolerance is, is uh, I need you to affirm me and everything that I believe, and if you don't affirm me, then I get the right to discredit you, to attack you, to hate on you, or at least to turn your thinking into a form of hate speech. You hate me, and therefore I have the right to hate you back. That form of modern tolerance is actually destructive. It's part of the reason why our, our society as a whole is falling apart at the seams. It's because we have adopted sort of a modern version of tolerance that is not simply working. Another way to think about tolerance, I think, is from um, other ways uh, that were described the famous atheist by the name of Bertrand Russell actually has an amazing way of describing tolerance, and I think a, a better vision than the more modern perspective. And here's what he says. He says, love is wise, hatred is foolish in this world, which is getting more and more closely interconnected. He, you know, again, he died in 1970, the year I was born. I have no idea when he wrote this, but my, my, my guess would be that he had no clue to even envision what type of hyperconnectivity we would at some point come into. But he says, we're getting more and more interconnected. Globalism's happening. It's a real thing. Uh, people are coming into our country. We're going into other people's countries. We're more and more connected. He says, we have to learn to tolerate each other. Uh, we have to learn to put up with the fact that some people are going to say things that you simply don't like. You can only live together in that way, but uh, we can only live together in that way. But if we are to live together and not die together, we must learn a kind of charity and a kind of tolerance, which is absolutely vital to the continuation of human life on this planet. I think there's a lot of truth there. Uh, Tim Keller would also say something along these lines. He said, tolerance isn't, not, uh, isn't about not having beliefs. So this modern notion that um, if I have a strong conviction about something, then I'm being intolerant, that's, that's, a, that's a faulty form of tolerance. Um, he goes on to say, he says, tolerance is not about not having beliefs. It's about uh, how your beliefs lead you to treat other people with whom you disagree with. That's the real big issue here. So if tolerance is this, in, or what Bertrand Russell said, then that's great. That's a great form of approaching other human beings and learning how to uh, integrate and talk and communicate without being destructive towards another human being that it disagrees with you. But the point of the matter that Paul is identifying is that it's about unity, that that Jesus is about bringing together people that are vastly different from one another and forming a new uh, family, a new community. And that's what we see that Jesus is up to in this world. So with that being said, he goes on to say in verse 11, kind of wrap up this little section, we'll move on to the next one. He says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. And then he goes on to say, my brothers, these things ought not to be the case. Um, so it's, there's a report given to him by somebody, again, uh, we read, we're reading someone else's mail. So it's important to know, like, who, who are the characters in this this act, right? Chloe, the house of Chloe. We don't really know much anything about who Chloe is, but 
we believe that she was probably a very wealthy female that owned a lot of property, had a nice large house. It's important to note that usually in the early church, in the early first century, when Christianity was beginning to spread, they didn't go out and like buy massive property and build these massive cathedrals. That didn't come until you know several hundred years later. Um, but what happened was these, these organic movements, these organic communities would begin to take shape and form in someone's household. And because most people in the first century were very poor, um, in order to have a place where a congregation can actually begin to you know, form a critical mass and begin to grow, you would need someone who's wealthy who would say, hey, I got a house, I got a property, why don't you come join us, be at our place, we'll provide a meal, provide the space, you guys can come and do the thing that you guys do, and that's exactly what happened. So a lot of people believe that Chloe was sort of a wealthy female that lived in that city of Corinth, which would have meant that she was extremely popular and well-known and very famous and very wealthy and well-off and was able to do this. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, as, as a church community, we still need this type of stuff today. In order for the church, I mean, when we first started, we depended upon the generosity of people. We still continue on the generosity of people. So the fact of the matter is, if you're wealthy, you're rich, you got a big property, you would love to open that up to space and opportunity and places for people to come and congregate, to study scripture, to pray for one another, to love one another. Man, we need that. Like, it's one of the things that my wife and I have always had a heart for. Like, we've always rented here on Slow, because we've never been able to afford a house. But the fact of the matter is, we've always, every house that we've ever moved into, we're always like, what type of space can we get that can accommodate the most amount of people? We want always, whatever space that we have, to be able to be given over to other people so that when other people can come to meet Jesus, I mean, imagine now, think about that. That's what Chloe was. She was opening her house up to this. God was using her on her property. This brand new movement was being birthed and grown and nurtured and cultivated and matured. And now Paul's writing a letter. He makes mention of her and so on and so forth. So anyways, what happens now in the rest of the story Paul begins to unpack, and then we begin to see his appeal, not only for unity, but secondly, we begin to see him make this appeal for um, maturity. But before I do that, I want to say one final thing before I move on. I think it's important to talk a little bit about uh, the nuances that I think are needed within unity, because this question of what does it mean to be unified? Are there legitimate disagreements that we can have? And how do we differentiate between the real important disagreements versus the really non-important disagreements. So let me give you an example. When I was a young Christian, brand new to the faith, um, I kind of lumped everything into the most highest level of important, like, bucket, right? Everything was in this most important bucket. So the deity of Jesus Christ was as important as not saying the F word, All right? You understand what I'm saying? And, and at some point, um, the as I began to grow, I began to realize, oh, you know, who Jesus was is not as important as a variety of other things within the early church or how I pattern my life. So here's what I mean by that is I think a way to think about this is that there are things within the Christian life and how we do church and how we live the Christian life that should be put into several different buckets or as one writer described it as writing our theology in pencil which can be erased at some point and modified in pen, which is a little bit more, obviously, uh, longer lasting than pencil, and then blood, which is, in other words, you're willing to die for that. You're willing to actually not bend, not modify, not shape, not erase, not change. Uh, so in other words, with blood, you are willing to die for certain truths. Um, so would you be willing to die uh, for you know, the, the right to not go see a, a movie that maybe you shouldn't go see? The fact of the matter is probably not. That's kind of weird. You shouldn't, shouldn't do that. So I'll give you an example, all right? So Christians, for a long time, they, they come up with lots of rules 
Uh, if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, you know that Christians are really good at creating a lot of rules. And those rules, some of them are kind of, can be kind of silly, depending upon the certain culture, the Christian culture you grew up in or you're part of. Uh, some rules, there's more rules than others, right? So in some Christian contexts, you might be like, everybody's all in the Christian music, which is, again, there's no problem. Let's listen to Christian music, it's fine. But some are like, if you listen to anything other than the Newsboys or anything other than Christian music, then you, you're probably subject to going to hell, right? Is that, is that true? Totally not. I mean, if you want to listen to bad music, that's totally fine. The point that I would make is this. Just because you listen to non-Christian music doesn't mean you're going to go to hell. It just simply means that that's, that's your preference. That's okay. You don't fight over that. That's something you write in pencil. Another way to think about it is there's uh, closed-handed issues and there's open-handed issues. There's open-handed issues that we can, we can disagree on. Like, here's one. There's a big theological word that's called eschatology. And churches literally divide and fight and discriminate over when Jesus is going to come back and how that entire scenario is going to play out, all right? I, I grew up in a church community that tended to focus way more on what was typically called a pre-tribulational rapture view, which meant that there's oftentimes people that within that context that saw anybody that did not believe in that particular frame or concept of how the end times are going to play out, uh, it would oftentimes raise this question of like suspicion. I'm not even really sure if they're a Christian. I'm not even really sure if they believe the Bible. I'm not even really sure they're going to go to heaven, right? And, and honestly, that is taking a, what I would put into a category of probably ink and turning into a category of blood. I mean, it's okay to have a strong conviction on that. It's totally fine. But to somehow begin to say and question other people's salvation, whether or not they belong to Jesus, because it doesn't line up with your ink category, that's not okay. That is what brings about division. Um, you guys following where I'm going with all this? It's helpful to think about this. Um, it's not saying you shouldn't have convictions. It is, it is really trying to say it requires nuance. It requires wisdom. It requires thoughtfulness to think about what are the things that should be in which category. Now, for example, uh, whether or not Jesus truly was God, what category would you put that? I mean, if you were like, ah, I think that's kind of pencil. I would say that's a little bit completely, I would say completely outside of the pale of historic Christian orthodoxy. All right, if, you, if you're going to start, you know, uh, tampering with that category, I would suggest it's, that's likely not, not, that's something other than Christianity. That's something other than what the historic followers of Jesus and the New Testament itself seems to very clearly purport. Um, so the point that I would make is this, is it's helpful to understand a variety of categories for some of these things. So hopefully that at least begins a conversation for you. It might not answer every single question you have, but at least maybe to begin to think carefully and critically about what it is that we could be and should be ultimately unifying over and what at the same time, if it's, if it's not a blood category, um, and if we're dividing over whether or not you should have organ music or drums, this is ridiculous. That, that's playing in the very, very thing that, that Paul's saying, guys, you're dividing over ridiculous things. Or whether or not, you know, should a Christian go to an R-rated movie? Like, I mean, there are Christians that kind of have that mindset. And if maybe if that's you, it's awesome to have that conviction. And wonderful. I mean, Christians kind of had that conviction throughout the 90s. And then all of a sudden, Mel Gibson comes out with the passion of the Christ. You're like, oh, my gosh, that's rated R. Like, I really love Jesus. And I was saying a movie about Jesus, but it's rated R. You don't know what to do. I'm completely freaking out in my faith right now. It's like, take a deep breath. It's okay. It's no problem. Go watch the Passion of the Christ. You're not going to go to hell. It's all good. The point that I make is this. I said these are real life struggles that sometimes people challenge and struggle with. 
But the point that I'd make is that it's not worthy of dividing over. Some things are, but not the stuff that Paul's referring to. So with that being said, let's just jump into the next thing, an appeal to maturity. And the reason why I think I would emphasize this about maturity is because here's a couple other passages to think about. It's all part of this one big monster section. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul would later go on to say, he says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. And so what Paul is uh, speaking to them, he said, look, to those who are mature or maturing, I want to impart wisdom to you. But unfortunately, he says, you're not mature. You're not able to receive the information that I'm trying to communicate to you because you guys are degenerating to sort of like children. You're acting, and then children, there's, there's nothing wrong with being a children, a, a child. Uh, that's, that's not at all the problem. But let's say if you're a child for 28 years, that's a problem, right? Um, that's a problem. If you're still 29 years old, 30 years old, and you're still playing video games at your mom and dad's house, you do not have a job, that's a problem. So the point that I'm making is that there comes a point where you got to mature, you got to grow, and Paul's, I think, addressing the issue of maturity. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as children or as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So he kind of links the concept of infancy in Christ with uh, the word as people of the flesh, which is the Greek word pneumatikos, meaning, uh, or not of the spirit. You're you're not walking in line with the heart of the spirit. You're walking more in line with the morals of Corinth. That's the big issue here. So this this raises the question, then what is actually happening here? Because then Paul's going to go on to say, just listen carefully. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, and then he breaks them down in four categories. Some of you say, I'm of Paul. Some say that you're of Apollos. Others say that I follow Kephas or Cephas. Uh, some of you say that I follow Christ. So what's happening here? So a lot of scholars have, tr- have really tried to ask this question. Like, what exactly is taking place? So number one, we know that there's these divisions in the church around certain celebrity types. Like, Paul, he's the man. Paul, he's the founder of the church. Paul is a super gifted, you know, communicator. He's really smart. He's intelligent. Uh, Sometimes he says things that we have no idea what he's talking about. He just sounds really exceptionally smart. Other people are like, ah, Paul, he's old school. I'm all into Apollos. Now, who's Apollos? The book of Acts tells us Apollos. He was a super gifted orator, communicator, speaker, uh, probably in line with what was typically known as a sophist. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, super gifted, artistic. Um, he had these cadences that were able to keep audiences attracted. He probably had a really cool haircut and wore like, like ripped uh, jeans, right? He's a cool dude on the block, right? He's a guy that everybody wanted to hang out with because it was like the cool hip church under Apollos' leadership. Some were like, I'm of Apollos. He's the cool dude. Others were like, I'm of Kephas, which is another way of describing Peter. Peter um, was with Jesus, right? He was with Jesus from the very beginning, and he had Jewish roots, and he was part of this original score of people there on the scene. So with Peter, Kephas, comes also this historical, rich imagery of nostalgia, of, of, of history, of um, maybe even to some degree tradition. Uh, I'm, I, I relate more to Kephas. And others were like, look, forget it all. I'm just a Jesus, I don't need Paul, I don't need Paulus, I don't need Kephas. I'm into, I'm indie, I'm a punk rocker. Like all I have is Jesus and that's all I need. I listen to Jesus, I go to Jesus, I don't need any authority speaking in my life, I got Jesus. So this is, this type of factions were happening in the early church. How is this happening? So a lot of scholars, and this is why I think it's important to listen to scholars, 
The, they, they might not have a whole lot of interaction with the rest of the world around them, but they spend a lot of time wrestling with the text and the scripture and the books and trying to make sense of all of this. And one of the things that they've discovered is that it's very likely what's happening is there's a group of people in the early first century that had been around for several hundred years. They were called the sophists. Now, sophists it comes from the Greek word uh, uh, sophie, which is you know, philosophy or uh, wisdom, the idea of wisdom. And so these guys were basically trained as communicators of speaking forth truth and wisdom to other people. What's unique about these sophists is these guys were like part philosopher, part life coach, part orator, part celebrity, part entrepreneur. These guys made money out of basically connecting with the elite class, the leaders of the culture, the people that had wealth and money, and they would basically be kind of like a personal life coach to them. Imagine having Anthony Robbins in your back pocket, right? You can just look him up, call him up, be like, dude, bro, what should I do right now? He just gives you like an hour and a half yelling, right? This is what you should, you know, that's what Anthony Robbins does. But the point of the matter is, imagine having it. That's what was happening in the first century. So you had these sophists, that were going around. And what took place in the early first century um, in Corinth is you had people that were aligning with particular sophists. And as a result of that, it was kind of like, a, like my sophist is better than, than your sophist type of framework. And what Paul is saying, look, you're bringing that whole sophist Corinthian mentality into the community of Jesus. It doesn't work. It's being destructive. It's undermining. It's undoing the very fabric that Jesus is seeking to undermine and to bring about. Jesus wants to bring wholeness, peace, life. He doesn't want to bring about this divisiveness. This is one of the reasons. I mean, look at our culture right now. What's happening in our culture at large? The exact same thing. Everybody's lining up to their own particular sophists, whether it be you know, Fox News sophists or MSNBC sophists. Whatever. The idea is that we are literally falling apart at the seams. So how should the church operate within the midst of that? I would suggest we take an entirely different posture. Where we recognize we don't take our P's and our Q's from the world and from how culture and society at large works. We look to Jesus. That's what we begin to see here, is that those that aligned with Paul, that had this affinity for Paul, they had this affinity for being connected to its founder, the logic, those that had this affinity for Apollos, they were all about the popular, the novel, the hip, the coolness factor of Apollos. Those that were aligned with Cephas, Cephas, Peter, they were all about being connected to tradition or the ancient worldview. Those that are a part of Jesus were kind of like the independents, the non-authority people that were like, I don't need anybody speaking in my life. And it's funny because a lot of sociologists today would say our culture and society has been so burnt by institutions and leaders that we're more anti-authority than ever before. And I would suggest that's totally false. We're more authority, pro-authority than ever before. The thing is, we're pro-me being the authority. We're totally cool with being pro-authority. I just want to be the one in charge. That's the culture we live in today. In other words, we've got you know, hundreds, if not thousands, if not seven billion people on this planet that want to claim their authority position and role. So what I would suggest, Paul is saying we've got a problem. And when that type of stuff creeps into the church, we've got even more of a problem. Because the church should be a safe space where people can come, meet the living God, be reshaped by his work, and be transformed to then go forth into the world and be a different type of person. And this is what Paul, I think, is inviting us to think about. So one thing I want to say before I finish this thought is it's okay to have preferences. It's okay to be like, you know, I totally prefer one preacher over another. That's fine. 
Um, look, if you come to Calvary Slow here, like I, you know, I, I totally prefer Nick Billich who spoke last week. That's totally fine. You're like, I don't really like Brian. He yells too much, and I get scared of him. That's totally fine, too. Um, or if you're like, you know, I like one. We've got so many musicians and so many incredible worship leaders here. I think, you know, we have like six or seven bands, uh, different leaders. Like some might have a greater affinity with, with Ryan Delmore, and others maybe more with others. And, but the point of that, that's okay. It's okay to have preferences. What's not okay is to be like, I'm going to form a faction around Ryan Delmore. That's not cool. Like, don't, don't do that. That's destructive. Or to form a faction around, you know, Nick Billich. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm with Nick. He's got a really cool mustache. I'm with Nick. I want to grow a mustache and look like Nick. It's, it is a really good-looking mustache, by the way. But the point that I make is this. I digress. We, that when we move into this realm of creating these factions, we're undermining and undoing the very work that Jesus came to do. And it's not okay. And what Paul's inviting us into is another way of thinking about how to do life. That's why Paul ends with these uh, rhetorical questions. I'll read them, then I'll wrap it up. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one might say that you were baptized in my name. I I, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether or not I baptized anyone else. In verse 17, he goes on to finish this little thought here. He says, for Christ did send me to baptize. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquence, wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of the power. And I think what Paul is basically getting at here is that, look, I'm not a sophist. Don't treat me like a sophist. Don't align around me like the sophists do. That's not who I am. I'm Paul the Apostle. I'm sent by Jesus. I got an entirely different role. Don't compare me. Don't put me in that box. That's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. It's not who I live according to. I live according to an entirely different paradigm. So should you, if Jesus is your king. So finally, I want to finish with uh, the question, um, what can we do ultimately uh, to move towards this unity and this maturity that Paul's saying. I'll just go through these four ones and I'll wrap it up. Number one, uh, know your place. Know your place. Um, Paul's going to use a metaphor later on in the letter to Corinth. He's going to describe it as a, as a, as a body. We, we are all body. We're one body, Christ's body. And we all have different parts. So you have a different role. But what Paul's going to say is that not one role is any better than another role. Um, I think one of the things that we... As long as we stay on the outside of being active or being an active body part, it's really easy, really easy for us to sit on the sidelines. Let's think of it as sitting on the outside of the party, right? Doors shut, you hear commotion, laughter, happiness, music on the inside. And here you are on the outside, on the front step, you're like, all those happy people, what's wrong with them? Like, dude, like, you, like you should go to the party. Go be a part of the party. Stop sitting on the front doorstep. Like, be a part of what's happening. You're missing out. It's way easier to be filled with criticism and anxiety and anger and frustration as long as you're on the doorstep. Go into the party. Know your place. Be a part of what's happening here. And again, one other thing happens when you do this. You begin to find yourself next to people, serving alongside people that are totally not like you. Do you realize how healthy that is? Do you realize that majority of time, the people that we spend the most of our time with are people that are very similar to us? 
that like the same music as us, that might have the same age of kids as us, that might go to the same church as us, that might listen to the same music as us, that might like the same movies as us, that might like the same everything. So in a sense, what we like about them is really what we like about us. And, and I want to just be really clear on this. There's nothing wrong with choosing your own friends like that. It's totally fine. It's normal. But the problem is, is when that becomes an idolatrous affair that you have, whereby you seclude yourself from entering into relationships with others that are nothing like you, that might even annoy you, I would say that when you place yourself in positions with people that, that are nothing like you, it might even bother you, you're putting yourself in a place to be really like Jesus. Because you will have to learn to love that person that drives you absolutely crazy. There's a word for that, by the way, in another type of relationship. It's called marriage. <laughs> oh, or roommates, right? But even not even to that degree. But the point that I make is that when we find ourselves living in relationship with other people like that, we are learning to love them, to serve them in spite of who they are, but just for the pure sake of serving other people. That's what Jesus does to you. Uh, one other thing I would say with regard to this as well is that we try to model this even within the way that we frame our church, the way that we do stuff. Um, I try hard to bring others to teach, to share the pulpit. I don't want to create a cult over and after my name. Um, I don't want to kind of create a system or context where this church is about me. There's a, a very easy for pastors to kind of create a cult-like a relationship where people follow the pastor. I remember talking with the pastor several years ago, and he's like, dude, I can never go on vacation. I'm like, how come? He's like, every time I go on vacation, people just don't come to church. I'm like, bro, you got a cult, dude. Like, that's, like, that's not cool. That's, that's a problem that you should actually take a very hard look at and consider adjusting it. Bring other people in to share the pulpit with you so this thing is not being built around your name and your greatness and your ability to talk and do whatever it is that you do. And there's nothing wrong with like living into the gifting that God's given you. But when you become sort of the center of this thing, that's a problem. So we have, you know, multiple teachers, people that are part of the teaching rotation here as at our church to share so that, so that never this thing becomes about any one person. It's one of the reasons why I think we have like multiple worship leaders and, and people that play music, and we rotate that often. We don't want to create a cult around one particular personality. And that's what Paul is basically saying here. Move, moving on, I want to point out the second thing. Adopt a healthy view of leaders. And I would say that many of us have an unhealthy view of leaders, where on the one hand, we either elevate leaders to an ungodly role where we expect so much out of them, and when they fail to deliver, then we get really upset, we get frustrated, we leave the church, we leave the faith in some cases, we're like, I'm tired of Christians, I'm tired of leaders, they constantly do nothing but let people down. Well, I would suggest what's happened is you had leader idolatry. I just made that word up, leader idolatry. It's the idea of like idolatry after a leader. Like you elevate a leader so high that they, they cannot deliver the goods that you're expecting them to deliver. Or they have a moral failure, and they, fa they just do, they do what humans do sometimes. They fail. And that can have incredible disruption to our lives. Or the other end of that spectrum is we just disrespect leaders. We have this unhealthy view where, like, all leaders are, you know, scoundrels and horrible human beings, and they're all out to oppress and all be part of the patriarchy and, like, oppress people and the system. And, you know, they're, they're the man that needs to be brought down. The point of the matter is, is both extremes, I would say, are unhealthy extremes. Uh, let me read you a passage that Paul would later write in the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians. He says this, chapter 5. And again, this might sound like a very self-serving 
Uh, believe me, as I read this, I just want you to listen to this. I am a leader, correct. But I just want you to listen to how the authoritative writers of the New Testament had positioned the people that are reading this to at least think about leadership in a different way as opposed to elevation or as opposed to disrespect. Here's what he says. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Uh, be at peace from among yourselves. And what Paul is basically admonishing is that, like, look, recognize that God actually puts people in positions not to abuse, not to take advantage of, not to manipulate, not to guilt, not to shame, but to lead, lovingly give of their time, their energy to lead. And when that happens, that should be celebrated. When it doesn't happen, it should be rebuked, should be called to the rug. It shouldn't have this posture of like, well, they're God's anointed, so never say anything negative about that. No, rebuke, remove. My goodness, if I do something that violates my, uh, you know, a, a sense of goodness or, or godliness, I need to be fired. Like, that's not okay. Like, the point of the matter is, is that leaders are appointed by God, but they have borders, they have boundaries. And when they do the right stuff that are in alignment with God, what you have is flourishing. You have fruitfulness that takes place. Thirdly, we see uh, Paul would constantly do this. Keep Jesus central. Keep Jesus central. That's big E on the eye chart, of course. And then finally, uh, pray for one another. Pray for one another. Uh, there's something that happens when we look at each other in a church family and maybe tempted to think, well, they're more gifted than I am or they got more influence or more whatever gifting uh, in this particular area. And it's easy to feel jealousy. Jealousy is like this nasty, this you know, destructive disease that sucks life out of us and keeps us from living into all that God has for us. How do we undo that? I would suggest the way that we undo that is we pray for one another. We bless them. Something happens fundamentally inside of us when we do that. I'll give you an example of how we do this. And when I say we, I mean we, meaning I, there's a lot of other churches on the Central Coast. And over the past many, many years, I've been a part of a community of just praying with them. And over the past year, year and a half, uh, I've had even more profound, incredible like inroads in terms of gathering together. So what we've done is we've expanded it so it's not just simply pastors on the Central Coast, and I should say specifically in San Luis Obispo, but also ministry leaders. So we have people that are part of crew you know, on campus and people that are part of uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes and people that are part of uh, Family Care Network that come, other nonprofit organizations that are serving the needs of people here in the name of Jesus. Um, and I'll, I'll show you a little slide. And I'll finish with this. So we, we meet uh, and we pray. And in fact, this past time, which was about two weeks ago, we, we met off in this corner over here. And I don't know how many people we had. There was a lot of people. But um, in this, like this one image right here are dozens, like at least, uh, I don't know, dozens, eight dozens, um, at least 15 different ministries, if not more, that are represented in just right here alone, which this represents hundreds, if not thousands of people here in Slow. And the way that we come together and we show, we undermine um, indifference and division is we do this. We come together. We lay hands on one another. We pray for one another. We love one another. We serve one another. When someone has a need, we gather around them and we pray for them. And this is what I would suggest as people of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus here today, that you would see the beauty in this. That this is this would, now does this mean I agree with every single thing and every means and method by which each of these guys do church? No, and they wouldn't agree with me as well. It's why there's multiple churches. We do things differently. But there's one thing that we all agree on, one thing that in, in blood we all believe on. Jesus is king. And we rally around that. 
and we support that in one another, and we pray for that in one another, and pray that God's blessing would come forth from each of our lives, because our hope is that Jesus would be made much of and slow in the Central Coast and ultimately beyond, because we believe his name is worth it. We believe his goodness is worth it. And the invitation for us as we wrap this up is no matter where you're at, is to ask the big question as we go to the table, as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, uh, we every week celebrate the broken bread. And in the bread is we have this visual image of Jesus taking bread, whole loaf, and dividing it. Why? So that as we eat that bread, we're united by way of that bread. That's the image, that he was broken so that we who are divided could be made whole. So the hope would be that as we eat the bread, drink the cup, that we would be reminded of the great love, the good news that God has given himself for us so that we would be made whole, that the relationships that we oftentimes find ourselves broken in the midst of could find hope of being brought back together again. This is where Jesus is taking everything. We're invited to partner with him right now. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to align, to orient some total of my life with his goodness and say, God, I want in. I want to be part of what you're up to in this world. I don't want to just sit on the outside of the party and poke fun and complain about everything that's not going my way. I want to be a part of what you're at, where you're at, with the messiness, the griminess, the, uh, the annoying people. I want to serve them because that's what you do. So as we go to the table, as we respond, why don't we all stand? The worship team will come on up. We'll wrap it up with a song. We'll go to the table. I want to read a passage over you guys that's from Jesus. The last bit of his life, he says this prayer. I just want you to listen to it. In fact, if you'd like, you can close your eyes and just focus and meditate and consider it and let the words sink in. Because the big question is, is what is on Jesus' mind just before he's about to die? What would be on your mind just before you, you're about to die? For Jesus, for Jesus, it, was that his, it would be that his community that would be formed in his name would be one. Not divided, not severed, not fragmented, but one. Listen to his words. He says, Father, I do not ask for these only, meaning the 12, but I also ask for those that will believe in me through your word. It's you. He's praying for you right here. That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. And they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me and the glory that you have given to me, I may be given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as you have loved me. Jesus' prayer for us would be that you and I would live out this oneness and that in doing that, we would demonstrate to the world around us that's living in this narrative, constant fragmentation, constant division, constant divisiveness, constant name-calling, and live differently. That by living differently, we would point to the greatness of the creative mind, the genius, the beautiful genius that loves us and gave himself for us. So let me pray. Let's respond. 
There will be some people off at the side at the cross that would love to pray for you. If you just need prayer, if you just need to just chill and hang out before God, there's some rugs at the front. Just go sit before the Lord as you take communion. You can go sit down and do business with God. We're there to pray for you. Let's pray. Jesus, right now we entrust our lives into your care. Have your way with us, Lord.